Hello, I'm Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political, and this is episode two of part two. So, episode two, what does it mean to be organized? This is an intergenerational look at organizing today and yesterday, how things have changed, how conditions have changed that characterize what an organization ought to be in today's time. Today, my guest is Praveen Loganadan from Detroit. He's an organizer with Detroit Will Breathe, an integrated, youth-led, militant organization fighting against police brutality and systemic racism in Detroit that formed during the nationwide protests around George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Aubrey. And I'm also joined by my co-host, Francesca Larson, who's also my producer with Mosaic Strategies. Hello, Francesca, and hello, Praveen. Praveen, we're so happy that you're with us today. It sounds like it's been a busy day for you. Yeah, every day as an organizer is busy in 2020. <laughs> All right, what was the first thing you did in, in organizing this morning? The first thing I did was uh, meet with a college student at 7 a.m. to talk about, is it their right or are they asking for a favor when they're fighting for something at a university? And what did he say? The student said, after some questioning about why it's important to them, they said, well, I'm impor- it's important to me because I'm fighting for my rights and I'm not asking for something extra. I'm asking for what is supposed to be given to me, not just as a paid student, but someone who believes education is a public good. Sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't get those moments all the time, but when you get one win, especially after one conversation, you just enjoy it until the next fight. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like that student may have started to see themselves as an organizer. Yeah. A lot of students are already organizing. They just don't realize that it's called organizing. How about you? When did you become an organizer? That's always a tough question for me. When I became an organizing, how I became it, students always want to know for me. The younger generation wants to know for me. I think for me, it's when I realized that just my existence was seen as resistance to a demographic or to a majority. For me, you know, I grew up in a Sri Lankan Tamil population. And as Tamils, we were always seen as a resistance, as a threat. And when I came to America, you know, as a first generation immigrant, then eventually a citizen, we are seen as a threat. I would be labeled as a troublemaker in schools. So then if you got kicked out of classroom or you got yelled at or got in trouble, okay, now, you know, I'm not trying anything extra and I'm already being considered a troublemaker. But then, you know, I realized that you can be a good troublemaker and fight for what's right. So if I'm already getting yelled at for being myself, might as well stand up for everyone to have their fair rights. What organization were you initially affiliated with? I think the real organization that we've you know first launched our like this a movement in was Detroit Will Breathe. Before then, it was just fighting to make sure my school did not get loss of funding or didn't close down a, sh- a center, fighting against a racist faculty in undergrad, individual fights that you work to fight or you work to lose, to not lose sometimes. But Detroit Will Breathe is one of my first movement-led organizations. I remember my first days in the movement. I think the absolute first opportunity I had to fight segregation was in Richmond, Virginia, where I grew up. And it was with a group called the NAACP Commandos, which was a youth group. But then I went away. I went away to college, went away to Amherst College in Massachusetts, and uh, I began hearing about this group called SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And without going into all the details, eventually I did get a chance to join with SNCC in Montgomery, Alabama, in what Willie Ricks called the Battle of Montgomery. Then I came to Newark, where I joined another group called the Students for Democratic Society, and their local affiliate was uh, INCUP, the Newark Community Union Project. And I think 
we have a lot in common because we were responding to the objective conditions as we found them at that time. We were fighting Jim Crow. Uh, how would you just define in one or two words your struggle? My struggle has always been around education and human rights. Okay. Ours was around in the South, segregation, the right to vote. And in Newark, it was uh, housing, police, a welfare system that didn't want to treat people right, teachers in schools who didn't think Black people could learn. Always something that was overwhelmingly large. And we said, well, we got to get some folks together. And I think that's what we are fighting with today, with Detroit Will Breathe, fighting against defunding and demilitarizing the police, sending that money from the police budget to other departments like public housing, health care, stopping the criminalization of homeless people, fighting for the rights of black and brown folk who've been at the forefront of systemic racism for 400 years and more. Now, in your, in your website, you said, uh, and I'm quoting, our power is in the streets, not in the hands of politicians. Uh, what do you mean by that? In our organizers' meeting, I think Detroit Will Breathe is an organization that formed on the streets. We were out protesting in the streets of Detroit, and we were all just individuals coming, trying to fight the racist curfew law that Mayor Duggan put into place. There was no organization, and because of that no organization, the police were able to brutalize us even worse. And the people that were arrested that day got together and decided to create an organization so that the rest of the marches that summer, there was a strategy to put direct action against the police, against the city council. So we've continued that strategy to this day. Our movement is focused on direct action, bringing people to the streets, and challenging the government through militant actions for what they want and need. Praveen, I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the things that we've really been trying to get into is that moment where you go from mobilizing to building an organization. Can you take us through that? What was that like? I, I can imagine that somebody might have had a video camera or a cell phone out. I'm older now, so we still call them video cameras. Um, somebody might have had a cell phone out. Somebody was taking notes. There was folks in a room. Maybe there was folks outside of the room. How did it happen? Where did it happen? I'm really glad you made that distinction between organizing and mobilizing. A lot of activists, so-called activists, are forming a heavy leadership team and then trying to mobilize people to the streets. I always believe that activism is when you get a group of people together, there's no power structure, you're talking about what are the priorities, what are the needs, and you organize together. You know, you keep that open mic on anytime that anyone wants to talk. For our process, the leaders of Detroit Will Breathe, the co-founders, were the ones who got arrested that first night. And that was, I remind you, a time when there was a pandemic, the peak of the COVID pandemic. So they were already making sacrifices for their health and their family's health. Now they're being arrested and charged. They even tried to keep one of our co-founders, Tristan Taylor, longer than they kept the rest of us because they said he was creating a public conspiracy against the government, right? Those lawsuits, the police can do whatever they want. But I, I can't tell you if there was a single moment in a room that we started organizing, but I can say that when you we got people together, we talked about what our demands are, and we made sure to keep that, to not create a power structure, to not create a hierarchy, to always keep listening to what are the demands of the people that are coming to the streets and fighting for. And you eventually started seeing some people repeat and repeat, and throughout the summer, and they stayed on throughout the fall, and you know, this year, 2020, and now we got people who are still on it 2021. And we continue that by having mass meetings so that new people can join, new organizers can join. That's kind of how you continue to organize. It's, it's really a people-driven structure, but there is no structure at the same point. I'm really interested. Junius, is that similar to how your organizations formed or was there more of a leadership structure? 
because I feel like what Praveen is describing is really similar to what I've described or what I've experienced now, what I've been part of, but maybe new for this generation. There was a conversation always going on about uh, we have no leaders. That was the, the SDS position. But yet and still, there were leaders. It's, it's inevitable that they become leaders, I think. There need not be a real structured hierarchy, but you have to have leaders. I think that's because some people have different skills and different interests. And so they're going to normally, naturally become leaders and other folks are going to listen to some people more than others. That's just called charisma or whatever. But there need not be a fixed hierarchy. So, for example, in both SNCC and in SDS, people discussed and discussed and discussed until there was consensus. But one could tell that some people had more sway than others in any kind of conversation. That doesn't bother me. The length of the time used to bother me. I didn't want to stay up to 2 or 3 o'clock trying to get everybody to agree. I guess I'm one of those kinds of people that expects folks to, at a certain point, just say, okay, well, we're going to go along with uh, him or her because uh, we trust them. That's very important. Uh, but I've seen some organizations just get bogged down because they can't make decisions because they're trying to become too democratic. There's a point at which democracy becomes disabling. I'm talking about small d democracy here. I'm not talking about the big D. We could talk about that, big D Democrats, <laughs> but we're not going to talk about that today. And I, I think that's very important. There was another aspect of what you were saying that interested me. And it was, uh, again, the, the uh, our power is in the streets, not in the hands of the politicians. Do you think it's important to develop any other base of power other than in the streets through direct action? A key committee that we have is outreach, working with individuals and also joining coalitions of other direct action orgs. That is another form of making sure that you are accessible to the people that you are fighting for. So coalition building is important. I would agree. Highly important. And that's Detroit Will Breathe was my first major organizing movement. But since that day, there have been so many different organizing groups and coalitions that have formed that are from a variety of intergenerational groups. What about the vote? When we came along, I'll give you an example. In Newark with uh, the Newark Community Union Project, a politician, quote unquote, came to us who had a track record of uh, direct action. And he was running an independent campaign to become an assemblyman because the Democrats had kicked him off the line. Why? Because he told the mayor, who was his boss at that time, I think the, your police are too brutal. So they kicked him off the line. He was no longer on the line. So he said, OK, I'm going to run anyway. See, we ran as an independent. Now, some of the, what they call the students, the organizers who were from the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, and uh, they looked at politicians, I think, the way perhaps your organization does. And they said, well, no, we can't get involved in politics. We can't do that. Not the way that uh, George wants us to do. We, we, we can't do that. But the people said, we want to support George Richardson. We want to become involved with voting. And so they helped him. So that was an example of where one group within the group decided, well, we want to go it our way. We decided we want to try another way and get another basis for power and have at least one person that we can depend on. What do you think? As an organization, specifically with Detroit Will Breathe, we have never endorsed, nor will we ever endorse a candidate as an organization, but as individuals, we will support, we will, you know, some of us will, will go out and work with someone who's trying to organize a campaign. And 
the reasoning that we decided to do that was as an organization, I think we mobilize for voting when oppressive structures are being used to silence votes. That is when we organize because that is the people's rights, the people's power to be in the streets and not to be used, not having oppressive structures against them. But when it comes to what candidate they choose, we are not firm believers that any politician will help you win or make a systemic change. Well, this is coming from somebody who recognizes that one of the biggest problems we have is holding people accountable that we put in office. However, if you don't challenge that office by putting some people in that you think you can trust, those systems will go on and still be oppressive. You can't, well, let me ask you this. Do you think you can maintain an organization in the street without looking at having some people on the inside that can join you in uh, dealing with the levels of power? In my opinion, there has to be organizations on the street and we can't we we should not work with politicians because no single politician, no community of politicians are going to make the change that is long-term. For example, one of the issues that we're fighting for now is public housing as a right for every individual. And if, the, and if you get po- progressive politicians to create public housing, it is very likely to you know, there is a likelihood that eventually might get corrupted or attacked and defunded. And that likelihood is always there unless people are on the streets. So the priority has always been organizing people in the streets and keeping the the government accountable regardless of who is in power. One of my chief tenets, if you will, and I wrote about this in my book, Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power, I realize that you need people in both places. And I say a little, my little phrase is, the power in the street must join with the power in the suites. Also, the power in the suites must join with the power in the streets. That has to happen in order for us to get our way. I'm talking about progressive people in America. I'm not talking about one particular race. I'm talking about uh, just the way politics go. The people who are contaminating our institutions at times, as you point out, they have big money on their side. The people in government that we support should have the masses on on, on their side. So how are you going to do that if all you want to do is to stay in the street and not be bothered with the people in the suites? This is one of the key questions that I think we come back to when it comes to generational organizing. The older movement that we work with, the movement that our structures are based off of, they are really pushing younger organizers to support candidates and get people in the suites. But as the younger organizing movement, I don't think it's just Detroit Breathe, is being very firm in saying our goal is to be in the streets and keep any any politician accountable in the suites. And I want to know when you were organizing with SNCC back in the day, you had that disagreement between suites and streets. But there must have been a politician who came before you all that came and said, well, I'm technically you know, in the suites, but I was also in the streets. Would you endorse me? And how did you come to that conversation to be like, you ain't, you're not, you know, we don't really believe you can make the change. We're still going to go out in the streets. How did that come for you? Funny you should ask, because one of the things that attracted me to SNCC post the Voting Rights Act, this was in 1965, was a decision made to go into Lowndes County. And they went into Lowndes County not just to vote, not just to get people registered to vote, which they did, which took a lot of bravery, a lot of effort. People got killed. People got run off their plantations or out of work. But they said, we're going to form an independent party. And they did. It was called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, whose symbol was the Black Panther. So as a result of that, 
people not only got registered to vote, they voted in the people that they wanted into the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, which was the way they got people interested in the whole idea of politics and power in the first place. So there, what do you think of that? It's a fine line you all are walking back in the day, which is how do you support up and coming politicians who are on the streets, but at the same time, consider people that are in the suites currently and saying, we fought for something. Why don't y'all support us? So how did you walk that fine line? Because that's something that we are experiencing, which is you got established Democrats who say we're progressive. We're fighting for you all in Congress. We're going to get these laws passed. And they symbolically came on the streets but they weren't with us and we're expected to endorse them. So we always continue to fight in the streets and let other organizations, like we, we often work with the democratic socialists. They are constantly looking at new candidates to put in the suites as individuals. We may support or work with those organizations, but as a, direct action organization, we have always looked at keeping it in the streets and keeping anyone accountable. Francesca, what do you think? I'm loving this going back and forth because Praveen, I'm usually the one, the one doing this with Junius. And one of the things that I, I'd love to get your take on is what the structures are right now that we need to defeat, that we need to look at or reimagine because sometimes we don't need the sweets anymore. There's a lot that we used to need the sweets for that we don't need them. We can build our own schools. We can create our own media networks. We can, frankly, build our own communities at this point without direct government support. So when you look at your own action, when you look at the role that you're playing in the community, the what you're organizing for, a lot of what you're organizing for is with a structure. Have you talked about just ignoring that structure? Where does that structure come into the conversation? Have you found yourself trying to play within the rules of that structure? To clarify, you're asking me, have I dealt with that back and forth with myself as an organizer? Yeah, yeah, with yourself. I did not come to direct action overnight. I think I tried every other form of protest, using the system to change the system, using, oh, there was even a, a sad time when I believed not for-profit or non-profits could create systemic change. <laughs> that was when I was very young. And it got to a point where I saw that the greatest change that we have made is through the direct action and the fights that we have kept on the streets. When I don't see that, I think you're seeing what a lot of young Democrats are feeling, which is loss of hope, loss of power, loss of I'll just take whoever I can get, or I'll take a non-fascist. But when you get people to the streets and you start recognizing their power, that's where you start you never start questioning yourself, actually. You start questioning the strategy, but as far as are you doing the right thing, you start feeling hope again, feeling power, and you feel like you're doing what's right. Well, let's put a pin in that for a minute. Let's talk about risk. We're talking about risk in the context of a lifestyle of uh, really what you're saying, anarchy. You're just going to depend upon people to rise up and be in the streets all the time without talking about making a living, what you're going to be talking about is holding people accountable, and that in and of itself, itself is good. That's certainly definitely needed. But what about risk assessment? What? How do you balance the risk against the need to stay together and fight another day? I'm still figuring that out day by day. There was, if I've, go back to last summer and think about individual moments, there was always the risk of the pandemic and our physical health and our family health. There was the risk of police brutality, arrests, felony charges that would maybe get us off the streets. We had to think about the difference between 
just getting out into the streets and protesting versus organizing with a strategy. What's the end goal? How are we going to get it? How can we strategically organize to address this goal? So it's not jumping at every issue that's been brought up in the media, but fighting for those that is organizing other people together, brings community members out into the streets, challenges the key narrative that's going on. How do you deal with fear? Personally, first. Personally, fear can destroy who you are. You can start doubting your self-esteem. Your physical health also gets affected. And I'm a huge fan of advocating for therapy. What I ask myself is, is my fear reality or is it perceived? Do I know it's going to happen or do I think what is going to happen? And we tell all organizers that come to the streets, this is a risk. You might get uh, brutalized by the police. You might be thrown in jail. You might have to go to court for a long time after. Think about these risks before you come. Then there's also the fear of, you know, sometimes being aggressive and, you know, going up to police and chanting, making chants. People think that's a fear. I can't stand up to the system. Those conversations about talking about your rights, talking with students, talking with young adults or students or with, you know, lifelong activists who are tired of fighting in the streets, talking about, no, the risk, there's this perceived risk and here's the reality of the risk. Have you had that conversation with your family? Yep. I have had that conversation with my family. The conversation from I'm going to the streets and they say, no, you're not. You're not going to the streets. We worked really hard to make sure you didn't have to go fight in the streets. I feel like there's other language involved there. But. <laughs> I was going to say we worked our asses off to get, you know, we worked our asses off on the streets so you would be able to, you know, use the system to live your best life. And now you're saying, I'm going to the streets to fight. That's the first conversation you have with your family. The second conversation is going back the second time. Yeah, I went there, but I'm not coming. I'm not just doing it at one time. I'm going to be there day after day, week after week, continue to fight in the streets, taking a risk of my mental health, physical health, financial health. You know, I might have to not get that job that you always wanted for me, but get a job that's, I'm, you know, can get me to function as a full time adult in air quotes <laughs> and still be able to mobilize in the streets. And then the, fi- the, the, the conversation I think is the most awkward is, Hey, if you uh, have a police officer knock on your door, don't answer. Just tell them, you know, tell them you didn't see me or, you know, a, a conversation about what to do if the police retaliate and they try to use unjust practices on us because they will go after family members to intimidate the organizer. In the South, there was one thing that helped us with fear, and that was music. The music was always there. And when we had those meetings in, in the churches or wherever they were held, even the meetings that you had on the sidewalk while the police were surrounding you. I remember the first time I faced some folks on horses. People told me they were Ku Klux Klan that had been deputized by the police. So we had the Ku Klux Klan on the horses. We had the police on the the motor scooters, and we were up against a church who never opened their doors for us during the entire time we were there. This was in Montgomery. And we started singing a song. This may be the last time. It may be the last time. I don't know. I had never heard that song before. I had never sung that song before. But some kind of way, they made everything all right. And guess what? What? They turned around and left us alone for a moment. Anyway, we were able to escape those long billy clubs and the police night sticks and guns. So you can't tell me that there isn't some kind of higher power. And we evoked it with that song. Now, I heard a song on one of your videos that I thought was fantastic. It was a song called We All Move Together. I see you nodding your head in confirmation. We all move together. And and the credit was Idris Alba. Did he write that song for you? Yeah. We had a collaboration with them to 
showcase our movement and showcase the things that were going around around the nation too. Well, now, is that the kind of song that everybody can sing? One of the big advantages of the Freedom Songs was that people knew the songs from the churches. Then you just change one word. Uh, great singers like uh, Bernice Reagan and uh, and Ruther and Cordell Reagan, all these people were in the, in the SNCC Freedom Singers, but they were also out there on the front line. They were field secretaries in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, along with other people. And other folks sang too, not just SNCC. But the songs were congregational songs, meaning everybody knew the words or could learn the new words. And therefore, the empowerment process came along to them quite easily. What about the music that you use? That song specifically was to celebrate Detroit's long history with techno music. As far as our marches, I think especially young people who are joining our marches don't realize how much music and joy we're celebrating when we're on the streets. We typically have a a marching band or a small group of people drumming and we're chanting and singing along. That's the new format. That's the new format. So I'm trying to think right now if I can give you an example of one. Please do. The issue is I'm trying to think of one specifically that I really want to use, but I can't remember what the second half is. Like, this is what democracy looks like. And then I can't remember that. And that's, yeah. if I did, if I ignore that, yeah. I can right. remember the others. I remember that. I've heard that. I think what's interesting too, is that you had one sound together, Junius. When we're out in the streets, we've got the collective sound. And then every single person almost is recording their own narrative. So there's video being taken, there's music being added to that, it's being shared. So what we're seeing and what we're sharing with the world has an individual soundtrack to it that you kind of collectively see from afar, but the place where you're seeing is actually the individual voice or the small group of voice that's participating in this larger mobilization and then how that echoes across social media. Because it's this weird moment, and Praveen, I don't know what role you all use with social media, and I'd love to hear a little bit about that, of this is what it looked like on TV versus this is what it looked like in our phones, in our community, to the folks who we were kind of quietly spreading this through. Before I forget the song, I'm going to say it. It There are powerful ones, but there's one specifically powerful in Detroit that I'll never forget. It was when I think we shut down Woodward at Mainstream Detroit. It was around midnight. Police were in riot gear and we were peacefully protesting, singing, living our best life, you know, you showing what the people's power looked like. And the police were in riot gear marching toward us and we kept singing why are you in riot gear? I don't see a riot here. Why are you in riot gear? I don't see a riot here. Why are you in riot gear? I don't see a riot here. And we were showing that because the narrative, without social media, the narrative on the mainstream media would have been this group that doesn't care, is violent, is destroying the property, destroying everything in Detroit. If that would be the narrative that would be spread out. To, that was narrative that was being spread out in Detroit. The chief of police stood up and said, no, we are peacefully stopping demonstrations that are peaceful. We're only using force on the violent ones. And when we're singing that song, I don't see a riot here. Why are you in riot gear? You see them the next second charge us, beat us up, take us down, tear gas us, use illegal tactics, illegal tactics to hurt us. And if it wasn't for social media, the people out there with the camera recording it, right, the people would never know the truth. And that is a constant tactic that we see in any generation's fight against black and brown lives is how the state or the government and the media work together to change the narrative of what is actually happening in the streets. Two different kinds of culture coming out of that protest. I'm seeing two different kinds of culture. And each one of of them takes on a life of its own. The the freedom songs, that was part of the romance of the Southern movement, whether you were in SNCC, SCLC, CORE, whoever you were with, you singing those songs. People picked up those songs 
and sang them. We didn't have the kind of social media. But now what you're seeing is the kinds of chants that you do and the media is picking you up. That's part of the attractiveness of uh, what you do and makes your movement whole. It might be because it's a year or two years later. I remember there were chants that our community members would, you know, use that really spoke. You know, when you got organizers, young people on the streets for the very first time, you got to have songs that black and brown folk can say and, you know, identify with and express what they're going through in their daily lives. And then you've got the songs that anyone can sing and say to show that they're there together in solidarity. It was the reason the Riot Gear song is still in my head is because our generation is growing up with politicians who are willing to say Black Lives Matter and at the same time deny a passage of a voting act. So now we have songs that will, we have chants that promote the systemic racism that Black and Brown folk go through every day, but then Democrats who are in power will use that to co-opt the narrative of what Black Lives Matter even means. So we have to come up with chants across the board to really remember to people how much power they have in the streets against racism and the corporate, the capitalistic rate structure we have in our society. So you brought it up that it's that it's two years later and maybe there's not a march today and there is still a narrative being told. And clearly there's still work to be done and still work that you're doing. How have you stayed organized? How, when you're not splashed on the front of uh, newspapers or CNN's not in the streets with you or Fox News isn't co-opting the message, how have you stayed together? It was really easy to be organized or to launch the organization when you're saying march today march tomorrow march today march tomorrow you knew when the march was going to start the exact time the exact next day the same location really easy to get people to show up the same time same day day after day as the time goes on it's no longer strategic to march every single day therefore now you have to try to figure out how to keep the momentum and how to keep the center of the organization around organizing. Because if you don't, you're going to start throwing out demands and having people mobilize to come support it. I think what has kept organizations so strong is that the state still has lawsuits against us. They are still trying to sue us in court, or they actually try to counter sue us in court. But after that march, where we were saying, why are you in riot gear? We, Detroit Will Breed leaders, uh, organizers, Detroit Will Breed organizers sent, filed a federal lawsuit that created a restraining order against Detroit police and us. Because of that lawsuit, we have been able to continue our strategy to get discovery on Detroit police, keep them away from our marches, and still fight the cases that are on individual protesters. So we've continued to organize and stay grounded in finding ways to work through the courts, but also to continue that demand, the, continue the demand for the people. Because there will be a moment where, again, we need to lead masses in the streets. But now we'll be a, an organization that has had two years plus under our belt that will be able to take the needle even further. I'm hearing you talk and you've talked a lot about direct action, but when we physically can't see you gathered in the streets, what does direct action look like? Direct action when we're not in the streets has, there are various forms of it. Some people think direct action means, you know, working through petitions. It depends on how you're petitioning, but for us, direct action has always been being strategic to address an organization's capabilities. This can be through strikes to help people find their power of the labor, the labor force. And it's not just happens overnight. You don't just get people to strike an organization or a company. There's a lot of outreach 
There's a lot of organizing meetings. There are calls that need to be made. There's a lot of different things. And such a simple word, direct action, but it's so packed with a lot of different elements. Can it be boring? Direct action can be boring. It can be they can be making calls and waiting in court so that you can pack the court. Packing the court is a form of direct action where, you know, we have a one of our protesters are in court being charged unjustly to show the prosecutor's office that people are watching. You pack the court with every single person. So we're about to do that next week, actually. Some of our protesters who got arrested in Shelby Township there are about five that are being charged with felony charges in Shelby Township, which is in our Macomb County, which is a heavily red county. But to answer your question, it can be very boring sometimes with direct action. Do you ever remember being bored, Junius, in organizing? I get bored because I'm still an organizer. Uh, I get bored when people who ought to know better do stupid things. <laughs> Amen. I agree with that strongly. <laughs> and I have so little patience for people like that. I do have a lot of patience with people who have been through the fire, been through the flood, and are still here just by God's love. And I have to help them see the bigger picture. That makes me feel very good. And yes, I'll take as much patience as I need to do. But let me ask you this. Given all that you said, how do you measure success? Success is being able to fight another day. Mm. At this point, you talked about mental health and everything in between and risk. There are days when I just didn't feel like getting out of bed. There are days where I feel like the world is going against us, but we don't drop off the map. We take our time. We acknowledge that we might be struggling and we still get out of bed, living to fight for tomorrow. So how has this changed you? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so much. I'm, I'm just imagining the last two years and I don't want to say we became, you know, I don't like adult-like. What is it? Not kid-like either. Are you less innocent? Yeah. We are less innocent. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if maybe this fits a little bit about how you feel. This comes from a, a friend of mine whose name is Margaret Prescott Noonan. She was an organizer with SNCC. She said the movement was a place where she could be who she was. Uh, quote, I'm proud of my accomplishments, but it has brought me neither fame nor fortune. I'm glad to be on the battlefield. That's exactly how I feel. So I think that we grew up where organizers were superheroes that we read about, that we saw in movies, and they were frequently, and Junius and I have talked about this, they were men, and they most likely had a wife and a child or two at home that we would see in a few scenes, usually a holiday photo and potentially a memorial scene. And that was it. They didn't have speaking roles. <laughs> Unless they were talking about the power of their husband, they didn't have speaking roles. And we love that the current movement is challenging that. Yes. They're bringing in, you know, intergeneration, multi-identity with queer folk and women leading the movements. How is that played in conversation? in making sure that when you're having a collective conversation, that there's a moment to recognize that there's a balance of voices being heard and not just the loudest voices or the deepest voices. This is an issue we run into often that typically I play the role, which is, hey, wait a second, didn't she just say that? Or you aren't listening to what's going on. And it's about building that community and family that not just the loudest voice has the trust, but that everyone that is saying something or speaking up should be trusted because their opinion matters. And they're probably more right than what the person with the loudest voice sometimes. In your experience, whose role has it been to ask whose voice is missing? 
in my experience, it's always been me asking that question. I have always been in an environment and I think about whose voice is missing because I'm an abolitionist educator who was really trained and grew up watching and learning from black women that I have always thought about that in a room, which is whose voice is missing, whose identities are being silenced, who's being forgotten or erased from the narrative. And that's very common with our media. Like they'll are the press or social media will like zoom in on the black men on the mic but then forget all the black women who organized the organized the march, set everything up, brought the mics, pick, picked the route, made sure we had security that we organized. They were the ones that did everything, but then the media picks the one second out of the entire hour-long march where the black man is holding the mic. Absolutely right. I'm really glad Francesca shared. Like, I wish Francesca and I went back and forth <laughs> during this too. So now I feel like we got that chunk too. And on that note, we're going to leave that and wish you good luck. And uh, I I admire your persistence. I admire your group's persistence. Uh, Looking at the uh, work that you've done with social media, I see that uh, you've used that quite effectively. Maybe we'll have to have you back to talk more about that uh, because that's something that uh, is a double-edged sword as far as I can see. But it looks like you really paint your picture well. You tell your story, you put it out there. Do you have uh, any other final comments, Francesca? Any other appraisals of this young man? (laughs) I'll give you a a chance to plug. What can we do to help support Detroit Will Breathe? Before I I answer that question, because I don't even know if I have an answer, (laughs) is we talk about intergeneration movements or intergeneration dialogues. And, you know, we're talking as if we're two different generations, but Even within Detroit Will Breathe, there are generations within generations. Up and coming, while I'm a youth-led activist, there are youth younger than me that are leading their own movement. And we're coming to a time in our life where the term youth is is broadening, but also like coming together. You know, it's 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 getting closer together, but it's also broadening. So I'm grateful for the people in our youth-led movement who have been actively organizing since they were kids with movements like Detroit Will Breathe. They were, you know, they were part of, I'm really thankful, like two of our co-founders, Tristan Taylor and Nakia Wallace, there's an age difference between them, but they've both been lifelong organizers. And one of the hardest things to do is to develop future organizers. And the fact that they were able to do that with me and that now I am able to do with an with another generation that might join Detroit OB, might continue fighting in other ways, is a blessing. And I'm really grateful for all of them. How old are you? I am 26. And how old are they? They are, I think one is also 26 and the other one is 35, 30, yeah, something around there. Junius likes to put together toolkits for organizers <laughs> because Junius is also an educator And I love the way that he puts it together. But since you mentioned bringing in new organizers and introducing folks to what it feels like, what it means to be an organizer, what what would you pass on to the next generation of organizer? Well, it'd be two layers. The first is a personal layer. So I found out during the movement on a personal level that I struggled with bipolar depression and anxiety. And I thought from years of fighting, you know, I got it. I got my mental health figured out. But when you fight in the entire system, you're going to learn a lot more about who you are and what you've been hiding about yourself. So on a personal level, I always recommend to think about therapy, think about actively talking to people in a clinical way and understanding the environmental and genetic components into mental health. I come from a community, just like a lot of the protesters, who don't believe going to therapy or doing mental health is something we do in our culture. That's something for white folk. It's something that we need to start challenging and something that we need to connect with. On an organizational level, I would think one of the lessons that I'm seeing we are learning is how do you support yourself as an organization, but also as individuals? The people that are in our movement, we love each other. 
because we are putting our, our, our own bodies on the line for each other. When one of us is attacked, we come together to protect that person. But sometimes we get so busy debating for hours that we forget about the people behind it. And we forget that sometimes the conflicts might be extended because of things going on in our personal lives. And it's important to build that time personally to get to know each other and having each other's backs and being okay to accept when someone has made a mistake and not blaming them for it. So that's why I would say as an organization, make sure you build that community because you are more alike than you are different and take that time to really get to know each other and not just wait for someone to tell you how they're feeling. You're human, they're human. You probably know how they're feeling if you put yourselves in how you felt back in the day. Well, I'm going to let your advice and your statement be my advice coming from the position of the need for that organizer's toolkit. I really appreciate uh, what you said. And so I want to thank you, uh, Praveen Logarathan, and also... Francesca Larson, my co-host. This is our second episode coming to a close. We hope that you will join us next month when we talk about the importance of story. We're going to be talking about the parts of narrative to get people interested, but also to hold people together. That's it for right now. Join us, and we hope you have enjoyed it as much as we have enjoyed talking to Praveen. Bye-bye. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies, with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.